Okay, I don't know how to start it off. It's been like six weeks. Hello there, cool yeah, cats and kittens. Forever. <laughs> I think it was like what the end of April. It's been busy. It's been a hot. It's been a hot minute. Yeah. Well, I mean, for everybody, yeah, that's listening, our whole eight listeners. Jonathan's a doctor now. Yeah, okay. I'm not a doctor. Yes, he is. He's a doctor. <laughs> I have a doctorate. Yes, but he's a, a doctor. Mm-hmm. He's, a, he's a doctor. <laughs> Um, oh, uh, this is the Crime of Palooza podcast. Um, I'm Alex. I'm Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Although I thought we were going this I'm way. Jonathan. <laughs> and we have a special guest, my boyfriend, John. It's the boyfriend episode. <laughs> <laughs> it's John. We'll see how long this lasts. <laughs> J-O-N. Yeah, 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 yeah. Joe Nathan. Joe Nathan. Instead of... Mine's better. Jonathan. Jonathan. <laughs> Did you emphasize the age? <laughs> What's going to last longer? This relationship or the podcast? <laughs> Listen and find out. <gasps> oh my wow. god. Wow. Wow. Spell that, that upside down. You spelled wrong. Yeah. Hey, we have a whole eight listeners. Yeah, yeah, we have eight listeners. Shout out to those eight listeners. Yeah, thank you. If you're still listening, I mean. Yeah. Just because they're subscribed is that the word Which i think doesn't mean that they actually listen i guess yeah but that's wait, very true show us it, it, it shows how the the yeah, listens so we're yeah. watching yeah <laughs> we are watching we've got our ways you guys don't buy tr- twitter bots <laughs> what's a twitter box the twitter bot you twitter buy followers bot. Oh, oh no i post on twitter he does he does our tweeter yeah I have a whole he does our tweeter followers. yes <laughs> yes wait there's two followers i'll look um, hold on oh my gosh we had a couple We've got a few on Instagram, but I suck at Instagram, so... Yeah, me too. I haven't even checked it. I don't even know how long. <coughs> I, I just kind of got bored with it for a bit, but I might lay in bed and do that tonight. Bored with what? Instagram. I haven't really checked it out lately. Huh. But I, I don't check out Twitter really either, unless I get an email. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's about your socials. It's about your clicks. It's about the clicks and the engagement. Yeah, the, the content. Constant content. We're busy. Fuck. Busy, busy. And guess what? Newsflash, we're not doing the Zodiac anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you can disregard all those episodes. I said, next week. Yeah, next week. And I just kept saying, next week. Soon we'll be. And then it turned into soon. And now <laughs> it's going to be whenever TBD. we decide to do it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah whenever whenever we have time to do we're it. We're going to wait serial killer. We yeah. will get there when yeah. we get there. Yeah. Because yeah. we, we have a whole one follower on Twitter, actually. Just <laughs> Did we lose one? One follower. Yeah, someone followed because there was two. Who oh, who was shame. it? Who is this follower? Uh, Delicadiza. Shout what out to Delicadiza. What they want to believe. 
Love yourself to the highest extreme. Nobody loves you. Wolves among sheep. New fan fanatics. Self-activist. I don't know who this person is, but thank you for the follow. Yeah. Hell yeah. Um, well, uh, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> no. My expertise is not in true crime. Or murder. <laughs> well, that's true crime. I, I don't know. I, well, true crime can be like B&E's. And DUI's. Hopefully they're not be. listening. <laughs> well, no, it's okay. Oh, there are things I can talk about, but the statute of limitations says otherwise. Ooh. Crime. I also work in uh, <laughs> disposal. Waste. Waste. If you need to find a, if you need to hide a body or dispose of a body, my contact information will be in the description <laughs> below. <laughs> then we might talk about you on this podcast yeah we will talk not even my we will are we sponsored no oh darn (laughs) (laughs) we're all sponsors (laughs) i'm sorry we need 50 followers for that (laughs) (laughs) no i'm just thinking about the way to roll episode sponsors (laughs) (laughs) no um okay all right John will provide you with the details later. Of what? Disposal. Oh. Yes. <laughs> Who knows? We might be your first sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> okay, so, um, is, did you want to go? Keep going? Or? You can talk. You can talk. No, I think, the ba- I, think, I think the banter is over. Tell, okay. tell us all about yourself. Like, yeah, what, yeah, yeah. What are your aspirations? Well, I am a Virgo. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> what's your horoscope? I'm a Virgo, Earth sign. Don't know what moon. <laughs> <laughs> Me either, actually. I'm Virgo, too. I don't know what moon either. I'm Cancer. When's your birthday again? Labor Day. <laughs> Labor Day? What day is that falling? Because I don't remember <laughs> what Labor Day is. Uh, the, se- the, first, the first full Monday of, of September. September. So it's different oh, each year, depending okay. on when okay. that first Monday is. Yeah, that's not much longer after No, that's right. That's yeah. right. So many people born... In June and and that season for me, so I many that I know. I didn't know where you were going. I thought you were just to say so many people born. <laughs> yes, that like, too. Uh, Coming from like, the doctor, okay. this is fact. Yeah, <laughs> the doctor is in. Okay, so did you guys want to get into the case? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. Well, finally, we're doing a case. After how long? Uh, Insane. Like two months, three months. Insane. We got COVID. Um, no, that was, uh, our spooky one. Do you think I'm spooky? (laughs) (laughs) Do you think I'm spooky? (laughs) Yeah, I remember that one. Okay, so, I didn't, I told John what this one is on. He doesn't know it. You didn't tell us? No, I did not. I wanted to keep it a surprise. Yeah, because I want your reactions to be natural, not like, oh my god, because you know when it's coming. (laughs) So am I getting editor credits on this episode? I yeah. mean, I guess. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> I mean, we don't really credit anyone here. <laughs> Except just, our sources. We're just, we're just <laughs> I'm building my CV. This is my start of my career. We will all remember this day. We are building our brand. So. <laughs> you'll hear this voice of John on 101.6 KTXY. <laughs> Lawsuit. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So. 
tonight I want to discuss a quadruple homicide case. Oh. Yeah, that remains unsolved to this day, and it occurred close to um, I where I recently, where we recently hiked in California, and I was thinking of this on the way there. Because I was like, I know this case. And I was like, this is perfect to do. It's interesting. It's a very interesting case. So still unsolved. Yes. A unsolved. lot of the ones we do are like unsolved cases. Yeah. So no spoilers. Well, Wineville was well, the only Wine, one. Well, yeah, that was like the yeah. only one we did that they found out who did it and they were Well, at the end of this, you'll you'll really wonder. So the Wineville was solved by, was solved. It was a deranged, drunk white woman, middle-aged white woman. <laughs> Her name was Catherine. Well, well, it was the Wineville chicken coop murders. So, so it was Cat. So it was Catherine, but with like three Ks. <laughs> it was Catherine with three Ks, who is a man that wore a dress. <laughs> yes. Did it take place in Arkansas? No. California. California. Ooh. The guy. We was, keep doing California. Yeah. It, there, there's a lot of weird, like, insane stories that come from there. Pun so. intended. A gold mine in California of serial killers. That's unfortunate, <laughs> though. <laughs> <laughs> you guys don't like my puns <laughs> joe might need heimlich we may we will be right back <laughs> i just remember my dad joke not dad joke but my joke i'll have to tell later but okay you're good at the end we can oh, totally yeah. it'll lighten the mood because this is this is a dark case okay so this case is known as the Keddy cabin murders that took place the lives of four individuals one night 1981 Jeez. okay so before we dive into this case i kind of want to set the stage of exactly where these murders took place which is kind of like i don't know really cool being well not really cool a little morbid i would say awe-inspiring yeah being close to it <laughs> um it's it's it's, it's um <laughs> what's the word <laughs> not bubby says hi Surreal? Is that the word you're looking for? Yeah, it was surreal. Yeah. It was just a, a little, you know, different. Just, yeah. I like it. Like when I was in LA and I was yeah. reading Helter Skelter at the time, it was it very was just surreal. Like, this all happened in this here. Thing, yeah. Here, and yeah. Really interesting. That's how I felt about thing about him. Yeah. Yeah, because you guys live out by that area. <laughs> like, I oh, drove, that's the house. I there. <laughs> you wanted to see what Troy looked like. Yeah. <laughs> it was interesting and creepy at the same time, but. And what does Troy look like? Has he worked on his abs? He said he's losing <laughs> weight after after getting the divorce. I don't think I should eat while laughing. Did he uh, Did he ever buy that motorcycle? <laughs> he was always talking about it. Now that he's free. <laughs> I'm sprung. Troy Troy is very plain. Yeah. Hey, like a lot of towns around here. Okay, so the place. Um, in which this murder happened, uh, Ketty, California. So according to Google, Ketty, California is an unincorporated community in the Sierra Nevada mountain range within Plumas County, just northwest of Reno, Nevada, northeast of Sacramento, California, and over 200 miles north of Yosemite National Park. And it's known as a resort town, at least it used to be. Um, which we were like 100 miles <laughs> north of yosemite so this was like we were right in the middle between ketty and yosemite yeah pretty close pretty close murder by proxy yeah 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 okay so in 2010 the population of ketty was at 66 
which we saw a lot when we were driving through to get to Yosemite. A lot of the little towns are like population 50. What? Yeah. I think the biggest one was like population 450 or something. Yeah, shit. Until you, got to, the, until you got to the national park, it's like... Desolate. I'm thinking of... The hills have eyes now for some reason. Kind of, yeah. Well, there are not very many eyes out there, really. <laughs> we saw a fire watchtower, too. Oh, that's cool. At the top cool. of a mountain. That was really cool. Those who wish me dead. Yeah, yep. I like that one. Okay, so, um, yeah, it's still really pretty out there, though. Oh, my God. Okay, so fun fact about Ketty. The total land area of the town is less than one square mile. And in 2010, 100% of the population lived in households. So this is, like, incredibly small. One square mile was, How, the, was the town. Households? California? In this market? I know, right? Yeah, <laughs> They're not renting? <laughs> Time to go in and be a slumlord! Anyway. So this is, like, the very definition of a, of a blink-and-you-miss-it kind of town. So, Ketty is the location of the Ketty W-Y-E, or the Y? I don't... Is that... W-Y-E. So, uh, this is a railroad junction, and the, names, and the name of the town stems from a guy named Arthur Ketty, who was a railroad uh, surveyor who purchased the survey rights and the right to build a rail- railroad through the um, Feather River Canyon, which is in Ke- Ketty, California. So I don't know when this town was founded. However, there was a functioning post office there that opened in 1910 and closed in 1966. Damn. That's all I can see on Wikipedia and even just in general. It says it's an unincorporated community on Google. So it's just like one of those. very small, close-knit kind of But, man, the area is just gorgeous. Okay, so. Gorgeous. Just fucking gorgeous. Gorgeous. (laughs) So the population of Ketty dwindled after the railroad closed down, and the town tried to boost a population by flipping it into a resort town. Ooh. Well, the town went to shit after Dale moved away, and, <laughs> well, Dale had cable. <laughs> <laughs> this is around the MTV era. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. They want their MTV. Um, so this resort area ultimately failed and led the owner of the Ketty Resort... Gary Molath to flip the resort cabins into <coughs> low-income housing for the residents of the community, um, which is the time period in which this case <coughs> occurs. Okay. So before getting into the case, I do want to make it known that there's a lot of misinformation about this online, really? specifically this case. Yeah, a lot of different what? websites saying different fucking things. Uh, it was weird. I wonder why, though. That's really weird. The, so, you know, <coughs> we all came from a really small town, so yep. small towns like to spread gossip. a bunch of fucking gossip That's and rumors. And so re- nobody knows what's re- what, what happened or what didn't. Yeah. Okay. Yep. okay. And Very you'll true. see what, how the cops did. I can't help but to wonder yeah. what those people are like out there. Well, when we drove through one of the mountain towns, they had a uh, skeleton sitting on a cooler with a sign that said, I got the vax. So, you know, take that from what you will. (laughs) It sounds a little bit familiar. (laughs) Skeletons can get vaccines. Yeah. Yeah, silly. Silly He needs muscle. (laughs) They have have no muscle. (laughs) 
I'm no medical expert, but doctor, I think he's already dead. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's dead. Guys, he doesn't have a pulse. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think he's going to make it. <laughs> so I don't exactly know, but a lot of the sources I found while researching this didn't line up with every <laughs> single detail. Um, so I, I will just, like, I want that to be said so that way if we gain even more followers and they listen to this and they're like, well, actually, chill. I know. It doesn't all add up, okay? <laughs> just, what's the most, I guess, common kind of, most reported is what you're kind of... Yeah, okay. pretty much. Sorry. Exactly what was confirmed um, through news reports. Okay. Yeah. Which I know the I news mean, can be wrong. Kind of like, <laughs> yeah, but, you know. Right. Lies and conjecture. What year did you say this occurred? 1981. So, I'm going to get into the background of the victims and exactly why they were living in the resort town of Keddie, California. So, the victims of this entire case in question were 36-year-old Glenna Susan, or better known as Sue, who I'll be referring to throughout this episode, um, Sharp, and her five children, John Stevens Sharp, uh, age 15 and among the deceased, Tina Louise Sharp, age 12 and among the deceased, oh. Sheila Sharp, age oh 14, Rick Sharp, age 10, and Greg Sharp, aged 5, oh as God. well as John Sharp's friend Dana Hall Wingate, age 17, and also How among the deceased. How many people were killed? Um, dead? Yeah. Four. Oh. She had five kids. There okay. were survivors because they. Oh, I was you, like, that seems see. like a lot of people. I was like, okay, but yeah. that's still terrible though. Yeah. Yeah, really, really, it's pretty sad. So, Sue was born on March 29th, 1945 in Springfield, Massachusetts, and was married to a man named James Sharp. While I was doing the research for this case, I uh, came across a random website that talked about James and his affiliation with the Navy. Um, That's weird. And the website... I'm not going to really name because they, they like to slander the victims. Oh, that's terrible. Like, they, yes. they are slut-shaving Sue and everything. Oh, my like, God. Yeah. You'll, it, it's really... That's awful. It's an interesting website. Who, who By the people after. that were from Ketty. They're the that's people that are terrible. around that area. So, yeah. That's fucked up. Yeah. Would they have internet access out there? <laughs> <laughs> no, they had to mail it off to, you know, somewhere else. Pony Express. Yeah. Yeah. <coughs> They got the Donner Pass over there, right? <laughs> there were no survivors. <laughs> po- uh, Donner Pass. Uh, they said a dollar. No. Can I have a dollar? <laughs> any, any chance to say, can I have a dollar? Joe's going to snap up. <laughs> I got him on that. Okay, so, um, yeah. If you do look this up, you'll see that. And uh, just kind of ignore it because it's, it's just all speculation. It's all rumors. Oh, yeah. No, I will. So before moving to California, Sue and James were married and had five children together. John, Tina, Sheila, Rick, and Greg, where they lived as a family in Connecticut. Other references state that before moving to California, Sue and her children lived in North Carolina, where they packed up and moved out west. So, again, another inconsistency. I don't know if it was Connecticut or North Carolina, but she left her abusive husband and And moved moved to California. Yeah, That we know. So Sue left James in 1979 due to his abusiveness, uh, where they separated, and she and her children packed up and moved to California, where her brother Don resided in a, nor- in a town north of Sacramento called Quincy, California. Since her ex-husband James was in the military, Sue was given around $250 from the Navy to live off of, which helped with the expenses of leaving James 
and moving out west. Sue's brother was to help them move out west to start a new life. So when Sue and her children arrived, they stayed in Quincy, California in a trailer that her brother had previously lived in. So he was kind of helping her along and helping her out. Um, so they lived in this trailer before leaving that, leaving that trailer for the low-income housing of the cabins in Ketty, California, which is only five miles outside of Quincy, California. So it was really, really close. And, of course, they wanted to stay really close to Don, her brother, um, in case they needed anything. They needed his pass. <laughs> his fast pass at Disneyland. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought the- he was going to say, like, a fast pass, like, what Chicago has? Oh, no, I mean... To drive you. on the highway. <laughs> <laughs> I know, yeah, I know. Like, the toll... Like, the toll... Like, the... You know, the toll things you just... Yes. Pass, yeah. Yep. Oh, so yeah, they built up the infrastructure on Donner Pass. Don has the pass. He's got the fast pass <laughs> to Donner's Pass. <laughs> oh, Master Chief. Oh, he's getting angry. He's okay, so the income provided by the Navy, as well as Sue working part-time at the Quincy Elks Lodge, helped supplement the family while they attempted to start their new lives in California. Which leads them to move into Keddy Cabin 28 in the fall of 1980, since the cabin was significantly larger than the trailer. And the previous tenant, the sheriff of Plumas uh, County, which is the county that Keddy's in, Sylvester Thomas had recently just moved out. The cabin housed all six of the Sharps, and to better her situation, Sue had begun taking typing classes and helped her children integrate into the community. The kids attended school in nearby Quincy, and they generally kept to themselves, making friends and staying out of trouble. So it seemed like she was just, you know, a single mother. Trying to fit in. Yeah. With integrating into the community. Honey, you're about a sixth of the community size. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no shit. Oh, my God. Believe it or not, there was more people back then, too. She's filling out the whole basketball team. She's got six <laughs> kids. That, she's got five starters and a sub. <laughs> This was pre-Bulls, okay? This was pre-Bulls. They could have made it. They could have made it. Yeah, but this is after Showtime. But L.A. is the home of basketball <laughs> at the time. Really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Me either. <laughs> Uneducated nerds. <laughs> you uncultured swine. Uncultured Sports. swine. Yeah, sports. Take some beer. <laughs> So, April 11th, 1981, the date in question for this case. So, the day seemed to be normal for the family. The neighbors noted that the Sharps were in and out of the cabin. Everyone appeared to be doing their own thing. And each had plans of what they wanted to do for the day and later on that night. At around 11.30 a.m., Sue, her daughter Sheila, and her son Greg drove from a neighbor's residence, the Meeks, to the the Gansner Field. I think I'm pronouncing this right, in Quincy, to pick up Rick from baseball tryouts earlier that morning. While picking up Rick, they saw John Sharp, the oldest son, and his friend Dana Hall Wingate trying to hitchhike back to Keddy from a canyon in Quincy, despite Sue previously telling John to, to not hitchhike. They picked John and Dana up and drove them six miles back to Keddy, where they must have hitchhiked back to Quincy again, since they were seen at around 3.30 p.m. that day in the downtown area, where they must have had prior plans to visit other friends in the town at that, at that time, despite them being there in the morning. So she's a lodge keeper, a typist, <laughs> and apparently the school bus driver, too. <laughs> she's got to make money, dude. She's a single mom. 
while picking up her children. Uh, oh. is, you know, they're not paying fucking freeloaders. I'm just Fun kidding. Right. I'm just kidding. So both planned on being back at the cabin and Ketty later on that evening. Sue urged the two to not hitchhike. However, they were seen hitching a ride in Quincy at around 9 to 10 p.m. that night. Sue's daughter Sheila had plans to stay the night at the neighbor's house, the Seabolt residence, where her sister Tina was already over there watching TV. That night, and left cabin 28 for her residence at around 8 p.m. So Sheila's going over to the Seabolt's house to stay the night while Tina was already over there watching TV. And once Sheila went over there, Tina stuck around for a bit and then went back home because she wanted to sleep in her bed. Makes sense. Which, yeah. same. I don't blame I get her. it. So while all of this was occurring, Stu, or sorry, not Stu. I, I have scream on my mind. Sue stayed behind at uh, cabin 28 with her two youngest sons, Rick and Greg, and their friend, Justin Smart, um, after Sheila left for the Seabolt residence. So um, Tina, after Sheila got there and she stayed for a bit, Tina arrived back at cabin 28, her home, at around 9.30 p.m. So, like, the times do kind of... They're, they're important for later. Okay. That's why I'm kind of harping on it. I don't, I don't expect anyone to remember everything, but... Okay, so at this point, it's the evening of April 11th, 1981. Sue is at home with her two youngest sons, Rick and Greg, and their friend, Justin Smart, who is also important for later, as well as her daughter, Tina, and then... Joining them later on in the night would be John and his friend Dana. Sue's other daughter is, is at the Seabolt's residence to stay the night and is not at cabin 28. So, like, pretty much majority of her children are home at this point with or without a friend. She's negotiating a trade with the Seabirds. Uh, the official <laughs> trade deadline is April 12th. Just throwing a hitch into the story. <laughs> It expires exactly at midnight. 11.59 p.m. Hey, look, the Sacramento Kings moved out there in the 80s. I think that she's trying to invest early, get her kids out <laughs> of poverty. <clears throat> Basketball and sports in general are a way to address this issue. <laughs> Wait, I thought that she would have, like, a baseball team by this point. Don't you need nine people for a baseball team? Oh, yeah, yes. you need nine. Yeah, you need nine starters, but who are you going to get for rotating pitchers here? You're not going to have the same pitcher for all nine innings. That's true. That's true. That's fair. That's fair. Okay. So at around 7 a.m. the next day, April 12, 1981, Sheila returned to her residence and discovered the bodies of her mother, Sue, her brother, John, and his friend, Dana, in the living room. So the way the cabins were set up, they were kind of like all the same. Um, you walk in the front door and it's the living room. Beyond that is the kitchen and two other bedrooms. One bedroom was the two sisters, Tina and Sheila, and the other uh, bedroom was for the two younger brothers, Rick and Greg. John, the eldest, had a room in the basement. And by, like, basement, it's one of those houses that's, like, on a cliff or a yeah. hill. And you just go downstairs and you're, you know, it's kind of underground, kind of not. Hell of a room for a teenager. I know, right? Perfect. Perfect teenager it. room. Um, so this is important for later. Because I... I I've heard that the... Ah, I'll get into it later. 
So Sheila returns and sees the three deceased bodies of her family and a family friend. All three had, had been bound at their ankles and wrists by electrical cords and medical tape. However, Sheila couldn't find her younger, younger sister Tina in the home, but her two younger brothers and their friend Justin were unharmed and in a different bedroom. Which, the bedroom is sort of a point of contention. Because I've heard that they were in John's room downstairs. And I've also heard that they were in their bedroom bedroom. Their actual bedroom upstairs. Uh, so I don't know where... Which one they were in, but they were in a room. But they were in a and bedroom. And they were unharmed. Completely unharmed. Interesting. Yep. Um, yeah, so everybody else but the little boys and Sheila are dead. So Sheila ran to the Seabolt's house to get help. Jamie uh, Seabolt, their teenage son, was able to get Rick, Greg, and Justin out of the house through a bedroom window. Um, apparently, the three boys slept through the murder. However, this is contradicted later on. So he just wanted to get them out, you know, so they didn't walk through the living room and see everything. Um, Jamie Seabolt did admit later that he did enter the home through a back door to see if anyone else was alive. Um, and he may have contaminated, you know, the crime scene and the evidence and everything. So what Sue, John, and Dana endured was particularly heinous. Police arrived at around 8 a.m. and at the scene, investigators found two bloodied knives, one of which was a steak knife bent at 30 degrees and a hammer. The blood spatter in the house showed that all three of the murders took place in the living room. Sue was found lying on her side by the couch, nude from the waist down, and gagged with a blue bandana in her own underwear, which was bound by tape. There was no evidence of sexual assault. She had been stabbed in the chest, blunt force trauma by the butt of a Daisy 880 Powerline BB rifle, which wow. was an interesting instrument. I don't know if that was like the murders or if it was in their house. I have no idea. Um, so that was found on her uh, markings on her head as well as by a uh, hammer. Her throat slat was slashed deep enough to go through her larynx, nicking oh. her spine. John, her son, his throat was slashed and had multiple head injuries caused by pl blunt force trauma with a, by a hammer. But Dana's in, um, injuries were multiple, pretty much just multiple head injuries um, and manual strangulation. So it was different with him. Um, the autopsy autopsies found that Sue and John died from stab wounds and blunt, blunt force trauma and Dana died from the asphyxiation. When Sue was found and the blood patterns were analyzed, they showed that her legs were at first splayed apart, but at some point the killer or killers had moved her, subsequently covering her body with a yellow blanket after her murder. They also noted that the boys' bodies were moved as well. Sue had defensive wounds on her arms, which indicated that she had tried to put up some kind of a fight during the attack. However, these uh, defensive wounds were not found on Dana nor John, so they didn't, you know, put up for a fight during the attack. So that'll come kind of into play later. Um, yeah, as to why they didn't have any defensive wounds. That's really weird. So the evidence that was found at the scene was... There was so much. <laughs> as stated before, the investigators found two bloodied knives... One of which, the steak knife, came from Sue's kitchen, a hammer, a plastic piece from the BB rifle, and a bloody fingerprint on a handrail that led down from the back door. Blood was, of course, everywhere at the scene, including the outside stairs. All of the blood matched the victims, meaning that the perpetrator or perpetrators 
um, didn't leave behind their own blood. Like, uh, they didn't cut themselves, which yeah. I find interesting. I heard that, like, m- most people that stab cut themselves and leave something. I, I don't know. I don't know by experience at all, so I'm just going by true crime documentaries. <laughs> yeah. Um, their DNA was left behind on a piece of tape on the victims, which we'll discuss later. So in Tina's room, the missing victim, investigators found bloodstains on her bedding that may have been transferred from the perpetrators after they murdered her family and kidnapped her from her bed. Initially, um, the investigators believed that finding her nearby was fruitless since it had been hours since she disappeared, which is fucking stupid. Just fucking send, do something. I don't know. She could have been right out in the woods. Exactly. Your life or something. Exactly. They sent out an all-points bulletin to Lassen, Butte, and Sierra counties, as well as Arena, Nevada, to be on the lookout for her. So, right now, the question remains, due to the nature of these murders and the extent of the injuries inflicted on the victims, were there any witnesses to this? Did anyone hear any commotion at Cabin 28 throughout the night? And if they did, what time did they hear it? Because nobody really knows. I don't know if they ever, like, took liver enzymes or, like, temperature or whatever for this to see, like, when the time of death was. And things weren't documented very well, it seems like, by the... Oh, it gets better. Like... Oh, it gets better. Yeah, I don't think the, uh, don't think the autopsy in the boonies has all your fancy, fancy, <laughs> fancy, sophisticated equipment in your that's big a, cities. That's a fair point. We don't do that, that fancy schmancy technology. <laughs> Look, I think you're lucky the county vet didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Sheila Sharp and the entire Seabolt family did not hear any noises through the night, although they were housed near Cabin 28. However, a couple living in Cabin 16 did hear commotion. They stated that they were woken up from hearing muffled screaming and groaning at around 1 a.m., but since they couldn't tell where the noises were coming from, they also went back to sleep. I heard that there was a dog barking by Cabin... Or not heard. I read... That there was a dog barking by Cabin 28 and people's cats were, like, walking in and out of their houses. What? I was like, okay, but cats do that. Yeah. That's, a, that's what cats do. That's, that's a cat thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, really <laughs> interesting. But they were making it the one of the sources, which I'll put in the, the show notes. Um, one of the sources was like, yeah, there was a dog barking and cats were walking. And it's like, no yeah. shit. Yeah. <laughs> Chirping. All things natural that happens in the, the woods. Owls were hooting. <laughs> the cows were mooing. Oh, it's the flood of the centuries coming back. Get no in the ark. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the three surviving children, Greg and Rick Sharp, and their friend Justin Smart, claimed to have slept throughout the murders. However, police remained skeptical of this due to the level of violence that had taken place in the home. The perpetrators, which we will get into eventually... Must have known of the three other boys in the bedroom. And investigators did theorize that possibly the perpetrators were interrupted during the killings, making them flee before getting the chance to attack the three boys in the other room. But this does not make sense, since there was the kidnapping of Tina. And if they were really, really, truly interrupted, they wouldn't have went in and kidnapped a whole child. (laughs) And made it even riskier to like, escape. Maybe they just were like done. They're just like, ah, oh, we've done too much, and I'm bored or exhausted or something. And we don't yeah. do it. I don't know. People are messed up. 
and they just will save this one for later. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. Um. Yeah. So it's just it's interesting, um, which we'll get back to Justin Smart later. In addition to the initial findings, investigators also noted that Tina's jacket, shoes, and toolbox were missing. The drapes were closed, the phone was taken off the hook, and the cord cut, and that there was no indication of forced entry. So clearly Sue or someone in the family uh, knew the perpetrators and let them inside the cabin, or trusted them in some way. Really, really interesting. There's no good why anyone would do that. And this isn't like the 70s where everybody left the do- doors unlocked. Yeah, that too. That's a good point. No, this is the early 80s. It's the yeah. 70. It's the 70s bonus rounds. Right? <laughs> so yeah. true. Just, have Some you people seen just. Have you seen early 80s in court? It's brown everywhere. Brown and yellow and like puke green. Some the Malays era was not kind on America. No. Like, just left their doors unlocked back then. Just like, oh yeah, that's fine. And then oh, people yeah, get yeah. murdered and it's terrible because they leave their doors unlocked or something. Not me. Every time I lock, walk in that door, I'm like, is that door locked? <laughs> yep. I am the same exact way. So Martin Smart, a neighbor of the Sharps and the father of Just- stepfather of Justin Smart, as I stated before, one of the boys that's key to this crime, Martin claimed that a claw hammer of his was missing from the cabin. He and other neighbors did become suspects in this case. However, it is worth it to note that Martin was a main suspect um, to the Plumas County Sheriff's Department. Investigators, of course, started interviewing locals and neighbors of the Sharps for any clues and to weed out any suspects. Did they interview the dogs, the cats, the cows? (laughs) (laughs) That were mooing and barking and just running Leave no stone unturned. It'll take like a morning. To get through the entire town here. <laughs> It'll take like an hour. <laughs> the roosters. Those cocks? Those cocks. Yeah. So the Siebel family and other neighbors did see a green van that was parked at cabin 28 around 9 p.m. the night before. Could this have been the vehicle that picked up John and Dana from Quincy that night and given them a ride home? And could this individual be one of the a suspect? Mm-hmm. A person of interest. Police surmised that the murders were not robbery motivated, but had been slightly uh, planned by two or more perpetrators. So they could tell that it was more than just one person that that committed this crime. And as I stated before, one of the boys would be discussing the murders to authorities, at first stating that he slept through the entire thing, but later recanting his story and stating that he had dreamt the murders or watched it from the doorway. So that he didn't really know if he was in a dream state or not. So Justin Smart, one of the boys that survived provided investigators with conflicting stories of the night. First, he claimed he slept through them, then claimed that he had dreamt the details of the murder, then subsequently claimed that he had actually witnessed them. So at first he was like, oh, I slept through it. and Oh, I dreamt it. Oh, no, I watched it. <laughs> How old yeah, are they? That's questionable. How old are these kids? Justin was probably between 5 and 10, maybe, yeah. maybe a little older. Yeah, uh, that sounds like a broken psyche to me. Yeah, well, that, and, yeah, and he, that's very he's true. A, he's, yeah, I mean, he's a kid. If he witnessed something, he could have just snapped and he's afraid. You'll think that. Y'all y'all will think that until I get to later. Um, yeah. I just feel like if I were a kid, I'd be afraid. It makes of, sense. I'd be afraid they would, um, you know, start asking me like questions like, why did they not kill me kind of thing. Right. Like, I'd be scared. Survivor's guilt? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's very true. So I don't know. So after a month later, Justin told his therapist that he kept having dreams of the murder. In these dreams, he would try to stop the bleeding from Sue's chest by using towels, and he covered her with a blanket. 
So recall that when uh, that she was found with a blanket on top of her, that was placed there post mortem. And keep in mind, the boys had not walked through the living room, so he had no idea that she was covered with a yellow blanket. Okay. And he's saying that he's dreaming of the murders and and doing that. Which, I mean, I've also heard that people, like, when they're found and they're murdered and they've got, like, a blanket over them or whatever, it's probably someone they knew and that person felt guilty Didn't afterwards. Yep. Yeah. Didn't want to look at them. Yeah. Yeah. So Justin claimed while under hypnosis that he recalled watching TV in the boys' bedroom that night when he started hearing noises from the living room. That's when Justin saw two men talking with Sue. One of the men was taller had short blonde hair and a mustache. The other man was shorter and had longer dark hair and clean shaven. Both were wearing glasses. Sounds like Maverick and Goose. <laughs> <laughs> then we can leave. <laughs> Going out of bounds. <laughs> They've got a need. A need for murder. <laughs> so Justin stated that John and Dana had come back to the cabin while Sue was talking to these men and started to argue with the men that resorted to physical violence that led to the murders. At some point, Tina came out of her room, and that was when the men kidnapped and kidnapped her and fled. So for random men that were talking with Sue calmly before the boys came home to tie up three adults, essentially three adults. I'm assuming the boys were... I know Dana was 17, John was 15. Um, to do that... And then viciously murder all three of them, kidnap Tina, and not be seen seems kind of unlikely to me. Right. I don't know. He this is under hypnosis, so yeah. we know that the hypnosis isn't used anymore because it's too unreliable, and people are manipulated when they're under very, hypnosis. Very and yeah. so is a child. Children are incredibly unreliable. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> So the nature of the crimes also appear to be a crime of passion. And it's obvious that there were differences in how Dana, the friend, was murdered versus Sue and John. He was strangled. They were all stabbed and their throats were slashed. Yeah. So it's different. They're both terrible. I'm not saying, like, <laughs> I'd rather be strangled. No. Like, they're both fucking it's, terrible. It's just weird that two of them were stabbed. Yeah. Why was, was one? Yeah. Unless, like... One person, if there was more than one person that committed this, and one I person took care of the two girls, yeah, or the the Sharp family, and then the other person was responsible for. Yeah. I don't know. Makes you wonder. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So, uh, like I said, we all know that hypnosis is unreliable and uh, isn't even used, or maybe it is kind of in psychiatry and psychology, but they don't really rely on it. Um. And it's been abandoned for use. And crimes like this, like crime cases. They don't hold because, up for evidence, yeah, really. Exactly. Um, so some suggest Sorry. that Justin had made this story up based you. off of the media coverage and suggestions from armchair experts since the murders took place and that listening to the tapes of the hypnosis also showed that the police were suggestive toward Justin during the hypnosis session. So again, he was manipulated, kind of, if you were mm -hmm. to listen to the tapes. So the police department also used a guy, Harlan Embry, to produce the composite sketches, <laughs> which we'll put in our Instagram. The composite, some, okay, so 
So Harlan Embry was used by the department to produce the composite sketches of the two men that Justin described, which, like I said, we'll put up on our Twitter and Instagram um, because the, they're hilarious. I the composite sketches. I want to see them. Like, this was a really dumb move on the police's part. So apparently Harlan Embry was an amateur sketch artist with no artistic ability nor any forensic sketching training who volunteered with the local police to help them out. Is it is it going to be like that one they showed on the news? <laughs> and they got, like, the, the, it looks god-awful. They're like, oh, here's a composite sketch of the... Oh, the leprechaun in Alabama. Oh my that God. too. Yes! And then there was, and there was another one. They're like, oh, this guy, and it... I can't even explain it. Like, the way it looked, it looked like a kid had drawn this. And, that, and the yes. news guy was like, uh, what? Yes, I remember that one, too. <laughs> I I wore, the one that looks identical to the anchor? Yes, yes. Kinda, I, yeah. yeah, I remember that one. Tonight it, at five, murder. <laughs> it looks oh. like Napoleon Dynamite fucking drew these composite sketches. Like, that's they just, are terrible. That was a poor decision on there because like that's not gonna get them anywhere yeah i can't wait to see them well okay so no one knows why the police let this quote-unquote artist draw these sketches um especially for this case when they had access to fbi top fbi forensic artists and department of justice forensic artists and they just went with harlan i mean i'm sure his art is beautiful but like they wanted to keep I, it local. I was like, keep it local. Support your local artists. They are members of your community. It was a small community. I mean, and, <laughs> really in most true? cases, yes. Support your local communities, but not when it comes to, you know, murder. <laughs> I would say. I don't know. Harlan Embry. Oh, yeah. Well, look up the composite sketches. They're oh, insane. So according to these beautiful sketches, the men in question were in their late 20s to early 30s. The taller one was between 5'11 to 6'2", dark blonde hair, and the shorter one having black greased back hair, standing at 5'6 to 5'10". And both were wearing gold-framed sunglasses at night inside. Oh. They're cool. (laughs) Seems very uh, Pulp Fiction to me. Yeah. Again, I'm asking, where were Maverick and Goose? Where did they leave? <laughs> we need to track this down. Were these aviators? Because <laughs> I'm right there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Despite all of this, investigators worked around the clock for the first few weeks after the murders, trying to gain new leads on who committed this crime and where Tina was and whether she was alive or not. The local community rumor mill began, and some locals believe that the crime was part of a ritualistic slaying or it was drug-motivated, despite there being no drugs found at the scene. A family acquaintance did tell investigators that Dana Wingate stole an unknown quantity of LSD from drug dealers in the area. However, this fact wasn't proven. Whoa, LSD. I mean, I know we're in North Cal, but damn, that's a a crime we haven't heard about since 1969. I know, know, right? Well, probably because they're so close to San Francisco. Oh, that's true. And the, the orange sunshine, is that what it was called? I don't know. This sounds like a messy situation to me. How do I spell his last name? Oh, uh, E-M-B-R-Y, I think. Okay, that's what we spell here. So there was belief that Tina was the target and for sexual purposes, some hoping that she was still alive and being held hostage somewhere. Around 4,000 man hours were spent on this case, and eventually investigators began looking at known slash recently captured serial killers that had ties to the area, two of which being Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole, 
although eventually these two losers were ruled out by December 1983 as not being involved at all. Initially, the FBI assisted in the investigation of Tina Sharp's kidnapping since she was a minor, but by April 29th, 1981, 18 days after the murders, they had backed off. The FBI backed off, even though she was a minor and she was kidnapped and missing. Um, stating that the, and, and the reason why, the FBI stated that the California State Department was doing a good enough job and that the FBI's presence was no longer needed. This is the early 80s. This is high, high watermark serial killers. We are now on the downswing. I know LA in particular has enough on their hands. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the Cal yeah, I'm pretty sure the Cal BI or whatever it is is up. a little occupado. <laughs> <laughs> just a little bit. Just a little bit. Just a tiny bit. Yeah. So authorities sent out police canines for a grid pattern search within a five mile radius around the home. But Tina nor any evidence turned up. So personally, five miles isn't enough. I don't know why they didn't go, go beyond five miles. Like, what? That's not fucking far at all. Um, but again, you know, sometimes abductions can and do occur around the house. So right, I can see. Just kept it close. Yeah, yeah, I can see why they kept it close. Three years and 11 days after the murders occurred on April 22nd, 1984, a bottle collector named Ronald Pedrini found the cranium portion of a human skull along with part of a mandible near Camp 18 in neighboring Butte County, which is around 90 miles southwest from Keddie, California. Hmm. At first, police assumed that the remains were of a Native American, possibly from long ago. But after the, the, the discovery, the Butte County Sheriff's Office got a phone call from an anonymous person stating that the remains that were found belonged to Tina Sharp. How would they know that? Unfortunately, the call was not documented. Huh. How would they? Uh, how would they know that? Who, who, unless it was the murderer or something, saying, it "Yep, was like this is who did it." But like the fact they didn't record it or anything—that's kind of yeah. By June 1984, the remains were confirmed to be Tina Sharp's oh, by a forensic pathologist using uh, her team. My, well, my well, I have nothing about it. If they got that call, they probably weren't expecting it to be someone saying it's Tina. Like you know what I mean? Like. Right, but after they found out that there it was Tina, they record nine one one records everything. Oh, so like we'll get into that later. Oh. In addition to the parts of Tina's skull in the woods, um, investigators found a pair of Levi's uh, Levi jeans lacking a back pocket, a blue jacket, a blanket, as well as an empty surgical tape dispenser. Which, remember, magical medical tape was bound around Sue, John, and Dana. So, pretty pretty consistent. Despite this evidence, it remained unknown exactly how Tina died. However, the medical examiner did state that Tina had died after November 1st, 1981. Which is around six months after the murders occurred. That's fucked up. So, that kind of... Probably hostage. That's messed up. And the theory of, like, Tina was the target kind of ringing true huh. but that also like it's it's really confusing which i don't know how they did that unless they went they went because they didn't it. even know how she died i don't know weird you know Mm-hmm. i mean if tina was the target and you know her family was just in the way 
I guess. And that's why they killed him. It's a possible theory. So the cabin that the murders took place in was <clears throat> demolished in 2004. So now we will get into the possible suspects and theories of what actually occurred. So this is when it gets pretty interesting. So as I stated before, could the perpetrators be the individual or individuals that picked up John Sharp and Dana Wingate when they were hitchhiking from Quincy to Keddie that night? So here's one theory. Since there wasn't a struggle, aka defensive wounds on either John nor uh, Dana, but Sue put up a fight. Could the person or persons picking up the boys tie them up in the vehicle on their way to the cabin where John and Dana just kind of complied to possibly make things easier? You know, maybe they promised them that they wouldn't kill him, etc. And to protect Sue and the others in the cabin and the perps used them as bait to get inside the house where Sue had tried to fight them. Or did the perps drop them off at the cabin, then come back later and force their way in or pretended to have, like, car trouble and then allow themselves an easy in? Or did the boys invite them into the cabin after being dropped off and they struck? Because there wasn't any forced entry. Yeah. So, and like you said, maybe they just kept their doors unlocked. Mm-hmm. Which... Could be a whole bunch of theories. Yeah. Well, kind of like that. Or, or... The person or persons picking up the boys had absolutely nothing to do with the murders. That. <laughs> There's also that. There's that too, yes. <laughs> and just innocently dropped them off. Hmm. So many theories. So, um, I could not find anything regarding the person or persons that picked the boys up. I will get to that later as like a, a development later on in the case. Um, but... We can assume that they were, like, maybe a passers-by driving through the area and just picked them up because they that was literally on their way out of the area to somewhere else or whatever. It could be anything, you know. And it's interesting that they never came forward, though. Yeah. Because, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe they just didn't know because it was just kind of localized in the area. It wasn't, like, national news or something. Uh, world tra- word travels fast in a small town. Yeah, that's very true. That's yeah. very true. Well, unless they were like driving cross country, I don't know. But like, if they were local, I would have been like, okay, I drove them home. Right. But I didn't like take my DNA, do everything. Yeah. I don't. I was not involved. I wasn't involved, but I yeah. did see them. Or maybe they didn't even know that those were the boys that were murdered too they probably didn't get names or anything yeah they just and it was nighttime so they didn't really see their face i don't know but interesting that that no one's actually come forward and said that they were the ones that picked them up so here's another theory um which involves john and dana again they attended a party that night in quincy at the home of a well-known family in that town but due to drug use occurring at the party no one came forward to offer any information so this was before any laws that were created that we have now um basically that if someone's life is in danger or if they were killed or something and there was drugs involved you're kind of protected because you're coming forth with information um at least here in missouri i think like good samaritan or something Yeah, yeah 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 i think so or is that when you, like, save someone's life from, like, a drug overdose? That, that saves see. somebody's life. Yeah, okay. That's, mm-hmm. that's your protection for first uh, first aid and first responders. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so that's right. They can't come back and see, oh, you broke my ribs or something like that. Yeah. 
So investigators were given reports that there was a couple of men at the party that were acting kind of off and that they may have followed John and Dana home or given them the ride home and may have been the per- perpetrators, but no one could identify them and nothing came of this. Hmm. Now I'm going to discuss the suspects of this case or persons of absolute extreme interest in the case. First off, we have Martin or Marty Smart. Justin Smart's stepfather and neighbor of the Sharps. So recall that Justin Smart was one of the boys that stayed over the night and during when the murder occurred, but survived. And uh, his description of a suspect in the case to the police matched that of his stepfather, Marty. Oh, Marty, his wife, Marilyn, and Marilyn's two sons, one of them being Justin, lived in cabin 26 that was just across the lane from cabin 28 where Sue, and, Sh- Sue um, and her kids lived. Marilyn, Marty, and Sue all knew each other. Aside from being neighbors and their kids hanging out together, all three of them were taking the same typing class, um, as I was going over before when Sue was taking it to kind of better her situation. Sewing circle, typing class, there's, there's something circle. bringing the community together. <laughs> Sewing circle. <laughs> also the Meryl Joanna. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. So, apparently, Marty had a terrible temper and admitted to it being a problem. Um, He also had a criminal record, and not too many people in the town liked him, which was like, what? A whole ten people. I'm just kidding. There's two dozen. There's two dozen. (laughs) And about a baker's dozen. (laughs) Previously, he had tried to run over Marilyn and one of her sons with a car. So, like, dreamy. (laughs) What a nice guy. I know. He's so nice. So investigators interrogated Marty after the murders. And as I said before, Marty offered up information that his hammer with a blue handle was missing from the house. He also told police that his stepson, Justin, might have seen something that night, but remained undetected from the killer or killers. Detectives gave Marty a polygraph test that he eventually passed, although this means absolutely nothing for today's standards. (laughs) With everything he had given up to authorities, Marty was never interviewed again. After the murders, Marty had left for Reno, Nevada, and then Portland, Oregon, where he died there from cancer in 2000. Interestingly, Marty was friends with the local sheriff, Doug Thomas, who personally interviewed Marty at the time of the investigation in 1981, and said that Marty was not a person of interest since he passed that polygraph test. Funny. Hmm. 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 It's hard to play good cop, bad cop when you are the cop. (laughs) (laughs) No fucking shit. So now Marty's wife, Marilyn, isn't completely 100% innocent in this. Since she later stated that she suspected that Marty and his friend John, or also known as Bo, Baudet, were absolutely involved in the murders. She thinks they were? Yeah, she thinks they were. Oh. Bo Bidet had organized crime ties in Chicago and was very new to the area and being there for only a few weeks where he met Marty at the local VA where Bo was being treated for PTSD. And I've read somewhere else, um, again, one of the sources, um, that he was living with them. Him and Marilyn huh. and their two kids. I don't, Maybe, I don't know if that's completely well, true. I mean, it makes sense, though. Like, if he was visiting and he was, you know. Right. From Chicago. Yeah, you need somewhere to stay. Very true. 
According to Marilyn, Marty, Bo, and Marilyn were at a local bar that night where all three went back home, but Marilyn stayed there to turn in for the night at around 11 p.m. Marty and Bo went back out again, but returned to the bar much later wearing three-piece suits and sunglasses into the bar, according to the locals that had witnessed them two at the bar that night. So basically, it's as if they were trying to like draw attention to themselves, yeah. possibly for like an alibi. Again, a messy situation. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> so uh, other patrons had noticed that both men were acting strange when they returned to the bar. Marilyn then stated that at around 2 a.m., she woke up to both men burning something in their wood stove. She huh. also stated that Marty hated John Sharp, Sue's oldest son, with a passion. Why? Quote, unquote, passion. What do you hate Right. Weird fucking flex on a 15-year-old boy. I hate that kid. Yeah, like, what Why? What, what the fuck? Do? Yeah. It's going to say still your video game, but I don't know if they had them back then. Probably not. <laughs> I don't think so. 80s? Yeah, they had some. They had Pong. Yeah, probably. Pong. Pong. That's Maybe Atari. Yeah, like yeah. Pong. Like yeah. <laughs> yep. So there was speculation that Sue may have been having an affair with Marty, St- with Marty Smart. But it was also said that Sue was counseling Marty's wife, Marilyn, and leaving her husband due to his abuse and the affairs he had in the past. Well, and she- possibly present that, you know made her want to leave him yeah because i mean if she confided in soon she was like hey i've been in this situation before you need to bolt right before it's too late or something and then you know he didn't like that and then yeah yeah i personally think it's the latter like there's no way that i i I don't know i don't like i said that one website believes the first really that she was having an affair with him yeah and marilyn found out yeah So this leads to a very incriminating letter that Marty wrote to Marilyn when he moved to Reno, Nevada, right after the murders. The letter is in regards to their marriage problems, where Marty ended the letter with this sentence. Quote, I've had the, I've paid the price of your love, and now I've bought it with four people's lives. You tell me we are through. Great. What else do you want? What? What is that supposed to mean? Well, he paid the price with four people's lives. That's what he said. Yeah. So he did it. Oh, he. Yeah, it sounds like a confession. Oh, that's, that's like a just confession a little bit. Just that a little sounds bit. Sounds like it. So yeah, yeah. Did Marty, the possessive, abusive, jealous fucking guy that he was, find out that Sue was coaching Marilyn to leave him, and he wanted to eliminate Sue? I don't that's know. what it sounds like to me. Yep. Marilyn also stated that she had found a bloody jacket of Tina's in the basement of her and Marty's cabin and turned it over to police, although no record of this occurring even exists. So they don't have the evidence of her jacket. Oh, jeez. But also, they found a jacket near her remains. So it's like. I know, right? Oh, it gets better. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Um,. But if they if she did turn it into the police, it wouldn't be the first time that something wasn't recorded or it was just ignored, you know, Very true. to protect their friend. And if they like thought, oh well, this case is already closed, we don't know what happened. They just probably me. Yeah. Yep. So the letter Marty wrote to Marilyn was also never admitted as evidence, and the phone call where Tina's remains were identified before they were completely identified as hers, that was also not admitted to um, as evidence. But she, it was Marty that called and said it was said it was her. Yeah, that could have been. He was still alive. Yeah. Yeah. 
You, you're, you're working on this too hard here. Not like the police department. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> In 2016, a counselor with the Veterans Administration in Reno, Nevada, alleged that Marty had confessed to the murders to them while he was a patient at the VA shortly after the murders occurred in 1981. The counselor stated that Marty wanted to clear his conscience that he had killed Sue and Tina, who was Tina was still missing at the time that he was confessing this to the counselor, but had nothing to do with John and Dana. He stated that he had to kill Tina since she was a witness to the whole thing and the motive for the murders was due to Marty believing that Sue was responsible for his wife, Marilyn, wanting to leave him. Does this not violate HIPAA law? I know you're supposed to keep everything quiet, and it's confidential, yeah. uh, but this is a crime. Uh, well, I mean, it it's not really HIPAA if they're releasing... Oh, well, if it's a confession, it, I don't know. I know that, like, with therapists, it's, nowadays, if yeah. you're a harm to yourself or others, they will contact, and they if tell you that. If it's something related to, like, a murder, I really, I, it's kind of like, they kind of have to report that kind of stuff. Like, if he's saying, oh, yeah, you know, I confessed to killing four people, or yeah. two people, they're going to be like... Yeah, that's a harm to yeah, society. Like, yeah, like, and then they're like, and you know this, they know this person was, you know, in that area when it happened. Then you're like, okay, well, we have to tell some, we have to tell them about this. I right. Thing. I wasn't sure. I would yeah. think that would be the case. Now, I think that's the same for priests, right? Mm-hmm. Mm, let's not, let's not delve into the Catholic Church here. <laughs> we need to talk about the, vi- the rounding success of our Veterans Administration. <laughs> Again. <laughs> yeah, they said that in 2016. Mm-hmm. It had been, like, what is it, 35 years at that point? Yeah. Until they finally came forward and was like, oh, yeah, I've got some evidence. <laughs> but but regardless of I, that... It wouldn't have, nothing would have came of it. The Department of Justice claimed that these allegations were just hearsay. Yeah. Which leads us into our funny thing about the Department of Justice in this case. Um, there's speculation that John or Bo... Boudet, the friend that was living with him that he met like a couple weeks before the murders happened, um, he being Marty, was a Department of Justice informant that was not properly investigated either. And it is interesting that the Department of Justice sent detectives <coughs> to the Ketty case early on in the form of organized crime investigators, not homicide investigators. Because if you recall, Bo had ties to organized crime in Chicago. So when this a case opened up and the Department of Justice like decided to help out, they sent organized crime investigators to it not to homicide. help out. Not homicide. That's so fucked up. Yeah. Like, you're sorry, but you're gonna get better results with people that actually yeah. do homicide. No, yeah. you gotta get those RICO charges on them. This is a small <laughs> town. Somebody's monopolizing on murder. Yeah. <laughs> Very true. So, Bo had ties to organized crime. What kind of ties remains a mystery, but later on, investigators find, found out that he had a criminal record and was an enforcer for the mafia in Chicago, but also working as an informant for the Department of Justice. Oh, so... So, mm. were they protecting him by not letting them admit evidence, by not by ignoring obvious clues and obvious, like, evidence... That those two, Marty and Bo, were possibly a part of it. Uh, sure, some hillbillies died, but we gotta shut down this illegal gambling ring <laughs> in the south side of Chicago. <laughs> what if I, my thought is, you know, he was an informant for them. If they were keeping him safe so the mafia or whatever wouldn't come after him if they found out. Apparently he was still working for the mafia. Oh. He was a secret informant. 
Well, I know, but like if, you know, they had said something like, oh, he was informant with us and all this stuff, like protecting him from a murder so he wouldn't be in the spotlight or anything like that. Maybe. I could see that. That wouldn't come out and then he'd be protected from the mafia still because he's still working for him. Sad thing is, we'll never know. Yeah. Yeah. Because Bo moved to Chicago after the Ketty murders and died in 1988. Ten toes down. Ten toes down. Yeah. So there have been new developments on the case since 1984 when Tina's remains were found. In 2013, Plumas County Sheriff hired Mike Gamberg as a special investigator. Mike was a deputy when the murders took place, but was not on the investigation at, all, at the time. Mike was, has openly criticized the quality of the investigation in 1981, especially the former sheriff's work on the murders, since he was, you know, buddy-buddy with fucking Marty. In 2013, Mike located the recording of the anonymous caller implicating that the remains found in 1984 by the bottle collector were of Tina. In 2016, a man using a metal detector found a hammer in a dried up pond close to the entrance to Ketty that matched closely to the claw hammer that Marty claimed was missing. The one with the blue handle. Uh Sheriff Hagwood believes that it was placed in the pond on purpose. And of course, these photos are online. They're it's like rusty pond hammer. <laughs> yeah. In 2016, Mike found a hunting knife under a junk pile and sent it for analysis. He also found that in the Ketty area. The latest update came from um, Mike again um, in April of 2018, where Mike matched the DNA from the murder scene to a known living suspect. No arrests have been made and no names released to the public. However, Mike believes that six people may have been involved, two of them being Marty and Bo. Shit. Yeah. Which goes back to that one website. They had, like, the six people in, on the website of, like, local Ketty people that, may, that knew of what was going on with the murder, knew who did it, all that other stuff. Um, of the remaining four who are still alive, Mike says, quote, they better batten down the hatches because we're coming we're continuing with the investigation and we're doing interviews and we have several persons of interest mike also identified a a woman who drove john and dana home and has already interviewed her so they did identify who did drive him those two boys home um but nothing else on her he interviewed her that's it since there is speculation that Sue and Marty were having an affair, Mike and others believe that Marilyn was complicit and may have found out about the affair and forced Marty to kill Sue since in his letter to her, he says, what else do you want? Like, yeah. what you asked for this. What more right. do you want? Interestingly, Marilyn moved out of her cabin, cabin 26, the day after the murders. And huh. that's kind of sketchy, that's too. Really and she seems and very Marty sense. went to Reno. Yeah. And she seemed kind of really like adamant saying it was him involved. Uh-huh. Kind of like That's put it off weird. of it. could be like he put, she was trying to get it, the heat off of her. Like it was all him. He did this. So Marilyn's a mob boss. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have thought? And mm-hmm. Bo was the enforcer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can see that. Sue's surviving children went on to live with the aunt, but eventually had to go into foster care since the aunt couldn't handle more children. <laughs> That's same sad, girl, though. same. I can't. I don't even want one. That's sad though. I just want cats. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. That's right. I know. Sheila speaks of the murders, but not to her brothers, as to protect them from what occurred. The Ketty murders remain officially unsolved to this day. So, what do you guys think? 
That's just shitty. I don't know. Like, I mean, those are two. I mean, I I feel like it was that Marty and Bo. Guy. I definitely, I definitely feel like Marty was totally involved. What else could he have meant? But then I can yeah. kind of see where they would think it was her that kind of orchestrated it with him saying, "I paid the price with four lives or whatever." What else could you want? Like. It could be like, yeah, she wanted to do it, or it could be like, hey, I want us to stay together. I got, you know, the people breaking us apart, got rid of them. Mm-hmm. What else do you want from me? Like, what can I do to bring you back or something like that? I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Jealous neighbor, jealous neighbor. Who knows? Yeah. You know they were neighbors. Yep. That's just... Literally, probably touching each other's freaking front porches. Probably. I don't know. Like he said, too. Like, yeah. Hmm. I couldn't find the sketches. Really? No, I don't know why. I don't know what. Oh, oh you'll see them. They're ridiculous. They're so ridiculous. I typed um, in his name and sketches and, like, this didn't pop up. Huh. Well, maybe he... Well, I mean, they, they did say that he was amateur. Maybe they wanted to just save themselves from the embarrassment of people looking at it and going, oh... Right? Yeah. Or yeah. Thing. No oh, idea. Could be too. I think it's Marty and Bo, for sure. I definitely think Marty has something to do with it. But where are they getting six people? Yeah. So this website, they... Oh God. I feel like... I don't know. I feel like if this occurred in Pekin, they definitely have more than one person. Just because, like... People, they, they're they like, yeah, bud, I got you. I got you. I'll, I'll help you out. I got your back. Yeah, I got your back. Bro. Yeah. <laughs> and then, like, they become complicit. I don't know. Yeah. Definitely, I don't think he's meaning that there were six people in the house that Just night. Just, like, there were six people involved with yeah. like, two people that were murdered. Like, and, I mean, it does seem them. a little... If, the, if it is true, the medical examiner saying that Tina's... Tina died after November 1st, like sometime after November 1st of the same year that everyone else died six months later. Like, was she the reason why they got her? Like, is she the reason why they killed the others and then abducted her to keep alive for that long? Because it would be different if it was... Six months is a long time. Yeah. Well, yeah You're holding sense. on to a witness. Yeah, for that long? It's weird. So if that's true, then I feel like it was motivated by her. And I can see the six people being a part of it. Because, you know... They were keeping usually it. Usually sickos like to flock together. Yeah, yep. But... I don't know. If it was because Sue was having an affair... Then it sounds like maybe Marilyn was going around saying, I'm going to have Marty kill her off or something. I don't fucking know. I don't know. Mm, It's a shame we can't go back to the old stitching bitch. We can can definitely figure that one out. Get the ladies in a circle. A white wine spritzer. Mm, We'll solve this case in a matter of minutes. Wait, old grandmas drink white wine spritzers? Huh. Oh, come on, a bunch of middle-aged and older-aged white women, white wine spritzer. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It's refreshing and low in calories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, still sophisticated. Yeah, you're not just drinking 
Hey, know. look, you gotta spice up that uh, yellowtail Chardonnay. <laughs> <laughs> look, those ladies, all they do is watch Lifetime and IDTV. I'm pretty sure that we can solve this case in, like, that. Oh my god, yeah. I've seen some good Lifetime movies. <laughs> They're so terrible. So, yeah, so you guys think that... What, I think it's Marty and Bill. I think so, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I don't know. I definitely think Marty has something to do with it. Well, yeah, I mean, he said it in the letter. But... And to a freaking counselor. Yeah. Yeah, like... yeah I'm leaning toward Marty and Bo. Yeah. Marty did all the Just... stabbing. Bo strangled his own son, Marty's son. No, say. no, no. Marty's son uh, was not harmed. Oh. The it stepson was... was it was uh, yeah. uh, John's friend from probably okay, so Bo just... Bo's there cleaning up the mess like he do as an enforcer. <laughs> And Marty's got to do the dirt. Marty's got to do the dirty work. Yeah, because the boss lady said so. I can <laughs> see that. Yeah, I can see that too. Interesting case. So yeah, that's the Keddy Cabin murders. Dang. He's in 1981. Yep. 1981. Fucked up. I can't believe I've never heard of that before. Yeah, that's actually surprising. Yeah, I've never heard of those either. Being so close to the area, well, not so close, but relatively closer, clo closer than here, yeah. Um, I was like, you know what, this is, yeah, I'm going to have to do this as a case since it's been like weeks since we've done right. months. We didn't even. do a site visit? We should have done a site visit. Oh, you know what? It probably would have taken the same amount of time to get there like it did for Yosemite. Yeah. <laughs> I could see But didn't that. you say the place was like... Two hours. I know, but didn't you see the place was burnt down or demolished or something? Yeah, oh, it's de it's right. been demolished. The site's still there, but yeah, and I read somewhere that Keddie's kind of like a ghost town at this point. I'm Nobody sure. really lives there. Yeah, I would I'm love sure. to see it though. Yeah, it'd be very interesting. It's, it's still like that's morbid, but right, no, interesting. <laughs> yeah, no, I've. I've... We'll make it. We'll make it a trip next time. Yes. We plan to go to California. Yes. <laughs> Well, that's the case. I'm going to look it all up later and I'm laying in bed. Oh, yeah. You got it. It's really good. And then not be able to sleep. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. Johnson, Just... where are all the tools and where's the toolbox? <laughs> this is usually at night. I don't like it. Like, babe, did you hear that? <laughs> Freaks himself out. I'm I like, do. all the time. Did you count that. all the stick knives? <laughs> <laughs> They're all yeah. in their spot, right? They're in the bedroom right now. <laughs> Yeah. My fingerprints wanna... aren't on them, right? <laughs> Jacqueline would be one to do it. No, I wouldn't. Moida. I would not. I'm just kidding. He won't do that. Well, no. I don't know what's going to be the next case. Did you guys want to do one? What? I'll, we'll I'll have to look one up. I yeah. can't think of any at the moment. Okay, we'll have to look one up. Maybe steer us out of fucking California? Yeah. Fuck, right. We were going to do the Zodiac. That's in California. We did this. That's right. It's in California. Wineville. That was California. California's the fucked up state. I know. Moida. <laughs> I mean, the other two were like Midwest. Yeah. But they were missing persons. I talked about, talk about him, right? I think so. Yeah. That was here. Okay. Yeah, that, that was, was here. here. That was yeah. here. Yeah, we're going to drop those like two at the ago. same time. Oh. So I can edit both of them. Okay. Yeah, we have another one that was done, what, March? Yeah. It's, it's been a while. It's Holy been a while. Shit. That one's that one's a doozy to edit, but I'll edit it to the standard that we usually have. Yeah. 
So expect two or whole eight followers. Yes. Please tell people about us. <laughs> yeah, right. We need followers. All right. Well, that is our case. I guess we could sign off. Okay. All right. I'm going to return some video to Oh, yes. 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 All right. John, did you want to say goodbye? We'll see if I'm here next time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs>